live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Good evening and welcome back to part two of our series on the Vilna Gon with both Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Tetz. Thank you very much for taking the time to come back and we're looking forward for another double session. Just thought I'd give a quick recap. Last week we spoke about the history of the city of Vilna and the background of the Vilna Gon, the Gro, as he is often referred to. You were both discussing his greatness and the fact that was a combination of his absolute genius and knowledge, but alongside his lifelong spiritual drive for purity and his dedication to Torah mitzvahs. So we'll use this episode to further continue, Rabbi Hirsch, the historical element and Rabbi Tetz, if you could share some other of his ideas, possibly not maths this time, and to get an even greater scope as to the great man he was. Rabbi Hirsch. Okay, so good vach. Um, as mentioned, this series is Le'ilu Neshmas Sarabas Noach, and this particular episode is sponsored for the schus of Yaakov Aaron Madar. Now, last week, Rabbi Tatz touched on the breadth of his writings. Uh, put simply, the Gon wrote on all of Torah. Torah Shebechsav, Torah Shebalpeh. He wrote entire Tzvarim on Chumish, on Tanakh, on Mishnah, Gomorrah, Tosefta, Sifri, Sifra, Shulchan Aruch, the Rambam. He wrote a map of Eretz Yisrael with the halachic elements. He wrote on the Haggadah, on Kabbalah, including Zayar, Sefer Yitzira. Um, and this list is likely the closest we will come to understanding the difference between us and the Vilna Gon. You mean by learning his writings? No, I mean by being aware of how much and how broadly he wrote, yeah. you at least understand how distant you are from his level. He told one of his Talmidim that on the posuk Aluzebanegev in Shlachlacha, he was aware of 2,260 explanations. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And the Gon insisted on a textual approach. It had to make sense within the posuk, within the Gomorrah. The basis has to be there. It can't just be that's what we do, even if what we do makes perfect sense halachically, and even if it was the Rishonim who had added or made changes to Talmudic law. Now, of his rulings, perhaps the best known is Sevzman Kriyashma, the last time in the morning that one can say the Shema, the timing of which has allowed people to get in an extra 30 minutes more sleep on a Shabbos or on holiday. But with regards to a number of his rulings, you would assume that they were pretty much absolute and followed to the letter, but you'd be surprised by certain ones when he challenged, accepted practices, and heaven intervened. We'll take one as a classic example, Burkas Kernim Duchanen, which in Ashkenazi practice happens only on Yontif even though the source of halacha requires it to be said daily, as indeed the Svardim do, and as the Shulchan Aruch rules. Now, there are obviously arguments, good arguments, to justify the Ashkenazi opinion, 
And I don't mean from contemporaries of the Gorn, but from the Rishonim, the Maram, the Maram Rottenberg, uh, the Maril. In fact, even the Gorn himself justifies it perhaps on the basis that t- to have a proper minion, the nine people listening have to be paying attention to every word of the repetition. But it is a biblical mitzvah, and he was determined to bring it back. And he expressed the idea and the importance to his Talmidim often. Yet ultimately, he never made it happen. Why? Well, let's hear what his main pupil, Rav Chaim of Volozhin, writes. Several times my master yearned to institute in his base Medrash that the Kohanim should recite Birkas Kohanim on a daily basis, but he dared not, until it came to a point that he decided that the next day the Kohanim would start this mitzvah, and on that very day, he was arrested by the non-Jewish authorities. Not for this mitzvah, I'm assuming. No, for completely unrelated reasons, a story we'll cover next week. But the Gon understood from the absolute timing that heaven prevented him from acting on the matter. And it didn't end with him either, because Reb Chaim Velozhin also tried, as recorded by his nephew, Reb Avram Simcha, my uncle the Gon said that he too once decided to instruct in his own town that on the next day the Kahanim should do Brukas Kernim. But that night his Besamedrush burnt down. From this it is evident that the matter was not supported by heaven, perhaps for the sake of the honour of the earlier generations. Quite special to have a direct message from heaven. Yes, we're not accustomed to have our halachic practices double-checked by heaven for approval. (laughs) With the gone, things worked on a different level. Why do you reckon heaven would have intervened on such a thing? Surely this isn't the first time there's been an interesting psaac. Okay, so we can't know, but there are spooky factors swirling around. The same ones that potentially led to the Ramchal being stopped in the middle of his flow of his creativity in the same century and having more than 50% of his writings lost forever, just a couple of years earlier. This was the period just after the destructive appearance of Shabtai Tzvi, the false messiah, who we will be dealing with in a few weeks' time, Yetashem, and who instilled a false sense of redemption and illegal hastening of redemption. The messianic fervor was to the detriment of the Jewish nation, and it is thought that part of the Gorn's interest in initiating Birkus Kernim was to put the idea of the restoration of the temple into people's awareness. And the Gorn's halachic input, being of such broad relevance, is weighed up not just against his sort of decision-making process, but the spiritual needs of the Jewish people. You're saying that after the Shabtai Tzvi, people sort of forgot about the... because it was a semi-scam... It was out of people's realm no, it, and the gone tried to... it could be to... misused. That's the problem. That it could be taken and so then in, why in, would in the, the wrong would direction. Have... So why did the gone try pushing for it? Because he understood the value that can be achieved through it. But mm-hmm. min they said, afal piquet. There was too Even much so, danger. Yep. Now, another of his rulings was to prohibit the saying of the brocha in Shul, just before the silent prayer of Mariv, which is Baruch Hashem Elam Omen Va'omen. And it was based on the fact that the Mishnah in Brachas tells us there can only be two Brachas after the Shema, before the silent prayer. And 
reciting Baruch Hashem La'olam is not mentioned anywhere in the Talmud Bavli or Yerushalmi. And even though you might think that saying an extra bracha can't harm, here it might for various reasons, one of which is that we are required to connect Geula Litvila in Mariv, redemption to the start of the silent prayer, and this would constitute an interruption. It would actually make things problematic. And that's, for instance, why the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch say you can't add this blessing. So personally, my family do follow most of the Menhagim of the Quran, therefore we'll, we don't. We'll get there. <laughs> okay. Now, Maisarav, which is a collection of the Gon's actual practices, we find the following. If a person is late to start Mariv, they should skip Baruch Hashem La'olam in order to recite the silent prayer together with the rest of the congregation. Then it says, but the Gon himself would never recite Baruch Hashem La'olam. And it ends off, but the congregation that was with him and the chazan would say it. So you're saying that the godl of the time gave a halachic ruling, but he couldn't get his own minion to agree? Correct. Because people don't give up old practices so easily, even if the Vilna Gon says so, especially where there is a reasoning behind it. Now, our Israeli listeners and yourself might be thinking, hang on a second, here in Israel, none of us say that blessing in Mariv. Not only that, but in Yushalayim, we do Birkas Kernim every day, Ashkenazim. And that's because when his Talmidim came to Eretz Yisrael, both of his ideas took place. The Gon caused this change even for Ashkenazim, um, because the Svardim agree with both of these things anyway. So it was easier to get the Ashkenazim to go along with it because the Svardim were the majority in Eretz Yisrael when they arrived. And this was only in Yerushalayim? As far as Bukras Kayanim, it didn't spread to all over Eretz Yisrael because there the Hasidim were the majority and they have different minhagim as to what to do. Now, another instance of heaven intervening relates to the Gon's plan to move to Eretz Yisrael. We know that he actually set out on his way and that he turned back and he explained to his sons that this was forced upon him by heaven. So, you know, when he feels uneasy, God helps him answer the question. And when about was this? We're not exactly sure. It would have happened in one of two periods of his life, either 1762 or 1778. It had to be somewhere within that period of time because he wrote a letter when he was on his way to his wife. And it records there that his father had already passed away and that his mother was still alive. And it's written to his first wife. So, you know, it's got to be in that period of time. In terms of halachic rulings, he also ruled that you make a bracha on reading the Megillah, on any of the Megillahs, not just Megillahs Esther, which is practiced, but less followed even in Eretz Yisrael. You've mentioned when the Gon felt that heaven intervened, and I know, Rabbi Hirsch, you're not a huge fan of the supernatural, and yet you seem to be saying this as fact. I'm sure you could tell us more about times that he personally did things beyond the natural, seeing that you seem to think the Gon was one of the people that is fully so, reliable. When I have said to you about these things in the past, that heaven intervened, this is once again very reliable testimony being brought. In terms of things that he did, in other words, you want a Hasidish Ramaisa about a Litvish Godel. <laughs> exactly. Well, of course there are, but we will do so in a Litvish way. We'll get an idea from the efficacy of his prayer. 
1794, on the 17th of Tammuz, the Russians began a siege of Vilna, encircling it, bombarding it, to remove the Polish rebels who were in Vilna. And the Jews were um, the outcome, in some degree, of the bombardments. 30 Jews were killed on one day. On the 15th of Av, almost a month later, the Polish rebels decided to break through the Russian encirclement at any cost. So the Jews came to the Gon because all of Vilna now could have been destroyed. And the Gon instructs the entire community to gather in the main shawl of Vilna, which had a capacity of almost 5,000. And he led the prayers with Tehillim, including Yan Hashem. And in the middle of it, there is a salvo of gunfire and the people were terrified. And the Gon called out, Batel, Batel. It's all been nullified. And it was all over. They discovered that one Polish rebel, who was presumably scared for his own life, opened the gates of the city for the Russians to enter without a fight. And every year, Jewish Vilna would commemorate this miracle on the 15th of Av. And there was a cannonball from this bombardment on the roof of one of the Jewish buildings. I think it was possibly even the shul itself, which was there for many years. And after the Gorn died, which was Sukkot 1797, the Chaya Odom gave a eulogy, a hesped, for his Mechutten the Gorn, and he recalled to the community this saving of the community. You remember the war and the protection the Gorn gave us through his tefillah, and that we are now without this protection. You know, we still have this drosha. Wow. So there you have an intervention. And in fact, after he died, to mark the absolute respect in which he was held, the place in which he sat where he learnt was closed off. You can see photos of it. And the shawl, in fact, stood until basically the end of the Second World War. The Nazis destroyed part of it, the Soviets the rest, and his house no longer stands there either. But we know where his house stood, right? Yes, sort of, yes. And the cemetery where he was buried, that's obviously still standing. So the cemetery is there, but the story is a story, unfortunately, of pure anti-Semitism. The Gorn was originally buried in the oldest cemetery, but the Soviets destroyed it, not the Nazis. And they removed the Matsevus of thousands of Jews. It was ostensibly because they needed the land to build, but it is in the middle of completely undeveloped fields until today. So it was purely to destroy Judaism. And they built a sports stadium over much of it. And the local Jews, I mean, there was a tiny remnant of Jews left after the Holocaust, were powerless to stop it. It was all done in the name of Soviet culture. The one thing they managed to plea for was the removal of the Vilnagon's keva, basically by sort of telling the bureaucrats that a curse will uh, befall all of those involved otherwise. And even though everyone was officially atheist, it's all skin deep. So they were allowed to remove a small amount of Kvarim 7, the Gorm, and those buried immediately around him, and they were reburied in a new cemetery. And in fact, various testimonies over the years have substantiated the narrative that the Jews who participated in the reburial, but who looked at the Vilnagon's body during this time, they died within a year. Well, that seems a bit harsh, seeing that they were doing such an incredible mitzvah at the same time. They went with that merit, but nevertheless. Wow. So who else was reburied alongside the Gon? So for many years, that was a very good question because almost every account given said something different and all of them were wrong. 
you know, the Gon's mother or the Gon's father or his ancestor, Ramesh Rifkus, or the, his son, Rabavram, his wife or his wives, Rabavram Danzig, Rabshmol Benavigda, Rabshmol Strush and Roshash, who wasn't even buried in that cemetery in the first place. Different years, different publications. Dost Yiddish Licht in 1958, Art Scroll 1994, Hatzofer 1962. And in all, 14 different candidates are proposed for, you know, seven or eight graves. It's just a little glimpse into the research that you do every week. Uh, no, this is from Rabbi Lyman, who does all the research that ever needs to be done. And it shows that under Soviet domination, it was virtually impossible for the Western world to gain accurate information about events taking place behind the Iron Curtain. I mean, nowadays, you can just read the tombstone inscriptions. In the present Ohel, which was built in 56, it contains seven graves, six of which have the original inscription. The seventh is unmarked, and that's presumably Avram ben Avram, the Ger Tzedek, whose original grave did not have a written tombstone, as we mentioned last week. And the other six tell us that alongside the Gon, there is Rubtsvi Hirschpesselus, who was a cousin and whom we mentioned helped finance the Gon's activities of Torah. His daughter and his son-in-law and Devera Pesselus, Rav Yitzchok Bear, Rav Bear, I think it is actually, a younger brother of the Vilna Gon, all of whom died after the Gon himself. And that means that the original plot in that first cemetery belonged to the Pestilus family. So it wasn't the greatest rabbis who were moved and reinterred, nor was it the Gon's father or mother or either of his wives. They were both buried in that cemetery, but not in his Oihel. And in fact, of all the famed people buried there, only the Ger Tzedek, resting in a corner of the cemetery, merited reburial together with the Gon. And, you know, there's some irony almost to this because he was the one who said you know i have no children but his matseva remains to be prayed at unlike thousands of others okay so last week we'd gotten to the point of 1749 in his life and his intervention with the geretzedek we now pick it up in the early 1750s at which time there was a very public and well-known dispute which went on for years between Rubyakov Emden and Rubyon Snaibershitz, both of whom were in uh, Hamburg, Altona at the time, and it would engulf almost every rabbi of note. Uh, the Pnei Yeshua, the Nodib Yehuda, some on one side, some on the other, advice from various rabbonim, each giving their reasoning. Sounds like we're going to have to do a series on it. We never, usually the public disputes end up on the podcast at some point. Yes. Who did the Vilnagon support? Which side? So it's very interesting. On the surface, it seems obvious, but we're not sure because of the following. He was approached by Rubionis and Eberschitz in 1755 because Rubionis published the only book in his own defense against the many charges brought against him by Rubiak of Emden. And it was entitled Luchos Edus. And it contained 50 letters or so with over 300 signatures of Rabonim from all over, vindicating Revibeshitz. The very last letter in the volume, which is actually printed separately from all the others, almost an afterthought, is the letter of the Vilnagon. 
And its position in the book reflects the fact that the Gorn, as we said, held no official rabbinic position ever, but at the time he was relatively unknown. This letter is probably the first time that the Gorn's name appears in print. He was 35 years old. Who was he? So the year later, Rubyakov Emden published Schwiras Luchos Haoven, not Evan, with a vov, not a vase, a devastating critique of Luchos Edus, and he devotes two lines to the Gorn's letter. And he says that Rav Eberschitz presented before us the testimony from Vilna from a young fool who testifies to the truthfulness of these amulets and these interpretations. Ouch. Obviously, Rav like almost anybody else, had never heard of the Gon. By 1769, 15 years later, things has changed. Rav Yaakov Emden had learnt who the Gon was, and we have correspondence between these two great individuals. And at this point, Rav Yaakov Emden writes that that original letter, ostensibly from the Gon, was tampered with. And he wrote that Eberschitz published a letter from this righteous person, which seems to vindicate him, when in fact it was forged using the name of Rabilio, the, the Gon. Except none of the Vilnagons Talmidim talk of this letter as being a forgery. So it leaves us with a bit of a problem. How do we account for the fact that Rav Ibershitz published it during the lifetime of the Gon in his defense, while Rabbi Yaakov Emden published an account that claimed it was forged, also during the Vilna Gon's lifetime, the, the, the Gon died 20 years after both of them. So the answer is put forward by the great historian and Rabbi Shneer Lyman, who I mentioned earlier, who explains it with two possible answers. The basic problem of the letter is the fact that the Gon seems to indicate that the words of Rabbi Bashitz are amitiim, true, and Yesodosom Baharare Kodesh, they are founded on principles of holiness. But then in the next paragraph, the Gon goes on to apologize for not getting involved. But surely he just did get involved by saying that they are true. Okay? So option one is that the Gon responded with a diplomatic letter, which was non-committal to which an editor or a forger only had to add five words at the beginning of the second line in order to change the whole meaning of the letter, those five words. Or, perhaps the opening line of Rabbi Bishut's letter to every rabbi was, enclosed, please find, Perushim Amitiim, true interpretations of the amulets that I wrote, Asher Yesodosam which are based on items of importance and truth, which take us to a real place of importance. And the Gorn may simply have written back saying, I received the letter which you write, which you write are Amitiim and R. Baharare Kodesh. He's just echoing the line that Ibershitz wrote, but the Gorn didn't give any personal opinion. He simply stayed out of it. He stayed neutral, which is the rest of the letter. Why? 
because at the age of 35, he didn't feel he could resolve the standoff between Emden and Weibeschitz. And anyway, the centre of this controversy was Germany, Bohemia, Moravia, where the Gorn had no influence. That's an interesting idea, but is there any hard evidence at all to back this up? You mean option two? So actually there is. Rav Lyman finds that in one of the other letters written by the chief rabbi of Hamburg, we find this exact phrase, which would perhaps indicate that that's the beginning of the letter that Rav Ibershitz wrote outwards. Okay, so last week you asked me how approachable the Gorn was, and I said not so much so. But he was still interested in people's welfare. I came across a story from Rav Shach, where he writes that when he was in Vilna, so pre-World War II, he saw written in the Kehillah records that the Gorn was responsible for starting a Mishnaya society and an Ein Yaakov group for laymen, and he gave the first shir to each of these groups. Now, as you're probably aware, people who learned Ein Yaakov were those who had very little textual knowledge or ability, and yet he felt responsible not only to found it, but to teach it. Didn't know he gave a share at all. Yes, so he gave the first. Interesting. And next week, we have to discuss his views on Hasidus, a proper understanding of the dispute, not a childish one, which will probably keep neither side happy as usual, but at least they will have heard the truth, <laughs> and the two times that he was arrested and imprisoned. That was fantastic, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you again for the continuation of the history of the Vulnagon. And now we are going to move over to Rabbi Tetz again. Last week was was fascinating. I haven't really had a maths lesson since primary school and he had my head spinning. I think this week we're going to be continuing with the thoughts and ideas of the Vilna Gon, and we're looking very forward to hear. Good, thank you very much indeed. Yes, last week we spoke about, about the Gon's mathematical knowledge and publications and his mastery of all the peripheral areas of Torah as well. The Gon also was a great mystic in the practical sense as well. You, our listeners might be interested to know there's a book by Morgenstern called The Gon and His Messianic Vision, a very interesting theory, perhaps Rabbi Hirsch at some time may enlarge on this, about why he undertook a trip to Israel, which actually was never completed. But the theory is that he was actually trying to make a messianic perfection in some way, and he was looking for something on the way, and very interestingly built that argument and documented, and our listeners might enjoy that as well. But a fascinating historical character, as we said last time, beyond our way beyond our level of conception or comprehension. And last week we gave some ideas of his thinking and at least one mathematical example. Let me continue by giving you another of his ideas. And again, to get a real picture of his mind, so to speak, would require endless discussion. But I'll give you one particularly beautiful and rather famous idea of his, and if there's time, perhaps one or two others. And that concerns the last eight verses in the Torah. Now, the last eight verses in the Torah present a problem because they talk about Moses' death, right? The verses say clearly, and Moshe died and he was buried and no one knows where he was buried, etc. Now, we have a deep a deep-rooted principle that the whole Torah is called Torah's Moshe. The whole Torah is the Torah of Moses, of Moshe, which means he wrote every word. The question, the question, in fact, asked by the Talmud, how could he write every word when the last eight verses describe his own death? Now, he didn't write them after his death. So how can the Torah say, and he was dead and buried, and, and yet claim those words to have been written by him? It's very perplexing, the last n- number of verses in the Torah. Well, the Gemara answers two very enigmatic answers, in fact, two different opinions in the Talmud. One is that, yes, he wrote them, but he wrote them crying. 
He wrote them crying. The, the language is he wrote them bedema. That means with tears. Now, of course, that is, what sort of answer is that? As the Maral, in fact, asks, what does it mean he wrote them with, how does that answer the question? You need to be alive to be writing with tears. And therefore, how on earth does it answer the question? Maral has a fascinating answer, which I'm not going to go into now because we're discussing the God and not the Maral. But he explains how an expression of writing while crying may be deemed to be writing after death. And that's a fascinating approach. But be that as it may, one answer in the Talmud is that he wrote those verses in tears or with tears. The other opinion is that Yehoshua wrote them, Joshua wrote them. Now, both of these answers are extremely problematic. As we said, the first answer that he wrote them while crying doesn't seem to answer the question at all, whatsoever. And the second, that Joshua wrote those verses is even more troubling. The principle is that the Torah is the Torah of Moshe. Yes, Joshua was a transitional phase. He wrote his own book, which is the transition, so to speak, between the five books of Torah and the other 18 books of the Torah, right? Five books of Torah, 19 books of Nach. So Joshua was transitional, that is quite true. And he does come up to the heels of Moshe in some way, and that the Meshachachim speaks about. But to say that he wrote those verses is to deny the fact that Moshe wrote the whole Torah. Now, that is a very strange approach. It's true the Ibn Ezra does in one place say, very, very controversially, that there are one or two verses in the Torah that were inserted later. This is extremely controversial and would lead us into a whole discussion of the Ibn Ezra. But there's no question that on the face of it, saying that the last number of verses in the Torah were written by Joshua is very problematic. How do you resolve? How do you answer those two? And furthermore, how do you resolve them? What's the unity between these two very different answers? We have a very well-established principle, and Rav Deslam was the one who spoke about this in detail, that every argument in Torah means that both sides are true. Even halachic arguments, let alone a deep philosophical argument like this. The principle is that when you have an argument in Torah, both sides are true. Each one is simply expressing a different facet of the same beautiful jewel, but not a contradiction to the other. Of course, there remains an argument at some level, but not at the crude level of disagreement about fact. So here the challenge is, what does each of these answers mean? And secondly, how can they be resolved? Enter the Gorn of Vilna. Using his genius and his Kabbalistic knowledge, he says this. We have a Kabbalistic teaching that before the Torah was given in the world, it was written. In fact, 2,000 years before the world was created, which really means 2,000 years before time was created, whatever that means, the Torah was written black fire upon white fire. But we have Kabbalistic sources, and the Gon quotes this, that the Torah was written in a string of letters, an undifferentiated string of letters. It wasn't written as words. It was written as one long, shall we say, dare we say, a DNA code, right, where the letters weren't yet carved up. You know, the DNA code is a string of billions of codons, in other words, genetic letters, and there are reading mechanisms that pass or cut up the DNA into three unit words, so to speak. The Torah was written in that form as a long string of undifferentiated letters. Of course, when the Torah was given in the world and human activity began manifesting in the world, then as events transpired, it became possible to read the words. In other words, the first word, for example, Bereshis, right? Bereshis borrow. That was written as Bereshis borrow in one long string. Well, how do you break up that word? Where do you carve the words? Well, after the creation manifested, now it becomes apparent that the words are to be read as Bereshis borrow, right? And so, so too with human activity. If human free will will choose its own path in the world, only after a human being has chosen a certain action in the world can you now know what the words in the Torah are saying. So the Torah was written beforehand, but an incomprehensible, 
undistinguished sequence of letters. And only after the events are transpiring in the world, it does it become apparent how you break up those letters into individual words and then a story is told. So Moshe translated it for us mortals to be able to read. Indeed, indeed. Says the God of Yonah, what Moshe did was bring down the Torah and rather than write it down as an undifferentiated string, he wrote it down as individual words. But the last verses of the Torah he left as an undifferentiated string. He left them as a long string of letters which is unintelligible. And after he died, Joshua separated the letters into words. Which means, on the one hand, Moshe did write it, indeed. What does it mean he wrote it but demma? Says the Gond, the word demma has two meanings. One meaning of demma is tears. Another meaning is undifferentiated. Similar to the word demai, which means demai means holy and profane mixed together. In fact, the very notion of a tear, of course, we're not talking about the same spelling, but we're talking about a linked idea. The notion of tears also means undifferentiated. Crying always means a situation of undifferentiated lack of clarity. The word bechi in Hebrew, which means to cry, is exactly the same Hebrew word as mevucha, which means amaze. One cries when one comes to a stage in the path when you cannot see the direction clearly. Then you cry. Even tears of happiness? That requires a separate discussion, but indeed, yes. And why, why people cry from happiness in the first place, this is not the Gonoville. You need to ask me that on a separate occasion. And that is a wonderful, wonderful discussion, and I'm very happy to talk about that as well. The fact remains that crying means a situation of maze, or as we say in English, amazement, where you cannot tell the direction. The Maral explains that's also why when you cry, you become incoherent because you cannot express a process clearly. And that's why you cannot see clearly when you cry because the, the tears cloud the eyes. And so water always, tears, liquid, water is always a return to the undifferentiated pre-creation state. The world was created out of water before the dry land of specifics was revealed. And so crying is always an entering of a zone of undifferentiated lack of clarity. And therefore, Writing the words bedema means undifferentiated, unclear. The string of letters could mean anything. So the opinion that says it was written bedema is correct. It means it was written in an undifferentiated string. And secondly, the opinion that Yoshua wrote it is correct. He didn't write the words, of course, because the whole Torah is written by Moshe. But all he did was simply separate the letters so that we could then read them. This is a genius resolution. And like all the Torah of the Gorn of Vilna, and in fact, to be fair, like all our great Torah authorities, vested totally in the words. There's no Torah that begins to move unless it's in a text. And the greatest exponent of that art of the last 500 years probably was the Gornavilla. When he says an idea, it is there in the words. It's not being you know, maneuvered in with a crowbar. You have to bend the words. When it says Bedema, it means Bedema. When it says Moshe wrote it, Moshe wrote it. When it says Joshua also had a hand, it means it. But vested in the words, very beautiful interpretation. One of the classic ideas of the Gornavilla. Well, thank you so much. Just a very slight off topic. The Torah was written 2,000 years before, which we don't know what that means because time wasn't created. But that means the Torah, there's a lot of history in there as well. Obviously not a relevant history, history we learn from. Are you saying that the entire history up until that point was all predetermined before the world was even created? Yes, and there are two approaches to your deep point. One, of course, is the old well-known issue of predetermination and free will, pre yeah pre-knowledge, foreknowledge and free will, which means Hashem wrote it all before, and yet we have the free will. The deep answer is that the Torah was written before creation, mapping out what would be, and yet we have the responsibility and the free will. There is another approach at a slightly lower level, 
that the Torah was written beforehand, but in an undifferentiated string of letters. And only when humans chose their path and specific actions in the world, does the Torah now take on that particular format. And had we chosen differently, the words would have been read differently. Let me add, if I may, if I may one brief idea of the Gorn again to close. Please do. And we'll leave the series at that. Of course, there's no end to what we could talk about. But here's one beautiful pshat or explanation of the Gorn. Again, very much in the words. I choose it because it's brief. And we can close with this. The verse in Mishlei, the verse in Mishlei says, In all your paths, know Hashem, know Him. And He will straighten out your pathways. By the way, anyone who went to Carmel College, this was the motto of Carmel College, and anyone who's an alumnus will know that. In all your ways, know God. And He will straighten out your pathways. Now, the challenge in this verse, as the Gorn points out, is why does the verse change from the word derech, which means a road, to orchos, which means paths? Why does it do that? Says the Gorn, the word derech means the highway. Derech means a road, highway, main road. Orchot means private pathways, right? Orchot tzadikim, one of the great classics, means the private pathways of the hidden righteous individuals who don't, uh, you know, publicize there. So orchot means the pathway, shall we say. And therefore, the tone of those two words, derech really means the main way, the main street, the highway, and orchos means the, the byways, the byways, the, the more hidden pathways. Says the Gon, what's being said here in this verse is the teaching is you take care of the highways. In other words, observe the Torah openly the way it should be. Fulfill the commandments, do what's explicitly instructed for you to do. Do not worry about the hidden, curved, private, shall we say, dare we say, Kabbalistic and secret ways of the Torah. If you behave correctly, if you fulfill the mitzvahs correctly, the Kabbalistic stuff will happen automatically. In other words, if you fulfill your obligations, eat matzah when you're obliged to eat matzah, sit in a sukkah when you're obliged, with the right intentions, fulfill the mitzvah. Rather than start worrying about all the Kabbalistic nuances when you may not be fulfilling the mitzvah correctly, don't do that. Walk the highway, which will get you to your destination. While you walk the highway, all the secret byways will be coming along too. And here's how the verse says it. The word da'ehu spells da'hevav, which means you should know the five and the six, says the Gon of Vilna. You should know the five books of the Torah and the six orders of the Mishnah. That's the explicit Torah. When you da'ehu, when you die, you know the five and the six, what happens? The hu Hashem hu vav aleph. The five and the six will draw along the silent aleph which is the Kabbalistic secret pathways which aren't heard in the world because it's a silent letter, those will be developed as well. And therefore the teaching is fulfill your obligations, don't try any fancy footwork until you've got the basics right. The secret stuff, the Kabbalistic stuff, the mystical stuff, that will happen along, will be drawn along, and the verse teaches it explicitly. The clue is a change from the word derech, which is highway, to the word orchos, which is byways. And the words, as usual, not only say it, but they spell it out. Hey vav, the two levels of explicit Torah, and then the same word, Heva, but with a silent Aleph, which is indicating the secret pathways, that is what will be straightened out and brought to fulfillment as well. That's beautiful. Thank you, Rabbi Tetz. Um, especially coming on from last week's, when you see what a mathematical genius, as you described last week, that doesn't usually go together with the creative genius, which you have portrayed this week, and yet he seemed to have the full, the full breadth. 
So thank you both for another fascinating episode. I think we've given the, I mean, I can't say given the Vilmagons justice because we'll, we'll never know the full extent of his genius, but we've at least tried on our level to bring out how unique he was. And we're looking forward to cover more incredible Godolim that we've been so to have throughout our history, together with the two of you. Thank you very much. And as usual, please do send all your reviews, all your questions, all your feedback to podcast.jle.org.uk and make sure you subscribe and follow so you don't miss another episode. Thank you. <laughs>